Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. Uh, and I want to try an experiment. This is quite risky. We don't know if it will work or not. But I want to try an experiment that leads us into and demonstrates what this new series is about. So if we move carefully across here, how many colours? It's a rainbow. How many colours? Seven. Seven main colours, but probably many others within that. I can't quite get it up onto there, I'm afraid. Okay, thank you. Put the lights back on again, up, Jonathan. Thank you. So, this simple piece of glass, when a light shines through it, scatters it from white into all sorts of different colours. Which, of course, is exactly what Ephesians 3 verse 10 is talking about. Who, who knows what Ephesians 3 verse 10 is? Joel, give it to us. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's always dangerous putting your hand up. It's like an auction. You end up actually buying something. Ephesians 3 verse 10, through the church. What happens through the church? Someone tell me. The manifold, thank you. Thank you, John. The manifold wisdom of God is demonstrated to the world. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is demonstrated to the world. And it's just exactly like that. That's my picture of it, because it's like the glory of God, which is a powerful white light, shines on the church. And the church, as it were, scatters it into different colours. And those different colours are what the world sees. Because the world can't quite understand the glory of God in its whiteness, but it can understand the wisdom of God in marriage. It can understand the wisdom of God in family. It can understand the wisdom of God in work. It can understand the wisdom of God in justice. That's what we do as the church. We're only a piece of glass. But if we are close to that white light, the closer we are, the brighter the colours we scatter. And this series is also about another way of looking at those colours. We're going to look at the different descriptions of the church, the different ways that the glory of God shines into the world. So I wanted to do that just to, to remind you and to think about how even the angels, they only see the white glorious light. This is what the mystery is that Paul talks about. The angels see this mystery. When the church comes, the angels suddenly see the manifold wisdom of God scattered in all these beautiful colours. So that's what our series is about. And today we're going to look at what I think is the greatest love story ever told. And we celebrated it this morning. It's the love of the creator of the universe for his people. It's also the longest love story ever told. It started, as we'll see in a minute, 2,500 years ago, and the story is still going. It is the greatest love story. It's a story of great passion and romance. It's also a story of great tragedy and rebellion and judgment. It's a story of mercy, and it has a glorious end, as we'll see in a minute. It's the only picture of the church, and we're going to look at five it's the only one that runs through all of history. And the picture is the bride of Christ. And we're going to trace that story this morning through the Bible. And from that, we're going to learn about who we are today and, and how we should, as the bride, be responding 
to the bridegroom. Does that sound okay? Good. Someone's. So we pick up the story first, right at the beginning in Exodus, where God, first of all, creates a people for himself. The people of Israel, as they come out of Egypt, um, and it's, we're taught about it in Jeremiah 2, verse 2, where God remembers the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, even though it was a land not sown. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The story starts so well. <laughs> These people follow God faithfully, even through a desert. But tragically, it soon goes wrong. The bride becomes unfaithful, distracted, starts to worship other things, even slips into spiritual adultery. Again, we get it in Jeremiah. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you've been unfaithful to me, our house of Israel, declares the Lord. The impact of adultery is devastating, even more so when it's spiritual adultery. So we see this cycle in the Old Testament of God reaching out in mercy to his bride, to win his bride back in, in sacrificial love. And then, and then the people of God, Israel, continuing to reject him uh, and, and reject his authority as her husband. And eventually what happens is God has to come in judgment for, for the good of his people to bring home to them the seriousness of what they're doing. And so there's judgment and then there's there's repentance, the people repent and God is merciful and, and he compassionate, he draws them back again in compassion and love. But the story just keeps going round and round, doesn't it? If you've read the Old Testament, you'll know that's the story. Um, it, it's, it's highlighted particularly in two books. Uh, the Song of Solomon is a picture both of a, a relationship between a husband and wife, but it's also a picture of a relationship between Jesus and his people. Read the Song of Solomon if you haven't recently. His banner over me is love. And it's full of beautiful passages describing some of this romance. And then on the other side, you've got the book of Hosea. Who's, who's read Hosea recently? Or who's read Hosea at all, all through it? You read it? It's quite a book really, isn't it? I mean, this is a prophet. And you know, if you read this, you would not want to be an Old Testament prophet. Because it's not just that he's got to say the stuff, he has to live it. He has to go and marry somebody who's a prostitute, and even when she goes away, he has to go back and win her again. It is a picture. The whole story of his life is a picture of God and his people, and loving them through all these things. It's a story of sacrificial love, challenge, judgment, mercy. Read Hosea chapter 11 is an amazing chapter. It's one of my favourite chapters in the Bible. The picture changes. He talks about um, being like a father or parent to his children. But it's a beautiful chapter. If you've never read Hosea chapter 11, go back and read it. Particularly if you feel you've drifted from God and you want to know what the way back is, Hosea 11 will tell you. So, so what's the solution to this cycle? How can we break this pattern of a loving bridegroom and a bride who, who wants to be faithful but despite her best efforts continues to drift away. Is, is there no hope for something different? I mean what we need obviously 
And what they needed was a, a new heart. It's a heart thing, isn't it? So we get a glimpse. We get a glimpse in Ezekiel 36, 26. This is still in the Old Testament. This is what God says. I'll give you a new heart. Put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That means a warm, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's an amazing promise. In fact, it's one of the most beautiful in the whole Bible. And you find it in the middle of Ezekiel. You find it repeated also in Jeremiah. This gives us hope that maybe, maybe this could change. Maybe this relationship could be made to work. So let's turn to the New Testament where God creates a new people, the church, out of his old people, the people of Israel. But this is something new. But it is still his people, the ones he's marrying. And we, we find that out because John the Baptist, who is talking about Jesus in John 3, says, I'm not the Christ. I've been sent before him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend, that's John, who attends the bridegroom, waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. So the story comes back again. We start to see the picture rising again of this relationship that marriage is actually an inadequate picture of, but the closest we can find. Jesus himself picks up the theme in Matthew 9.14 when he talks about himself being the bridegroom. And then the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, one of his most, chapter 11, one of his most um, personal passages in the Bible, a real emotion. He's talking about this church at Corinth, which he invested so much of his life into, but is now struggling. And he says about them, I feel a deep jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to, prevent you, to present you as a pure virgin. Paul saw his role as an apostle to present the church to Jesus as a bride, to restore that, the beauty of that relationship, the intimacy of that relationship. And of course, we get a tantalizing but glorious glimpse of how the story ends, don't we, in Revelation. Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9. For their marriage, the wedding supper of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Isn't that amazing? That's the end of history. The end of history is something we don't talk about enough, I think. We need to remember the end of history is when Jesus comes back. And this world is moving towards that. In fact, I think looking around, you could say this world is rushing towards that day. And it's a day when he comes back and he sits on this great white throne and everything is put right. Every injustice that has ever happened is dealt with and put right. Now, of course, we're involved in those things. So not only do we see justice for ourselves, we see that we have been in unjust. And it says the books are opened, recording everything that has happened. And in the light of that, none of us, 
none of us would have a right to that wedding feast. We'd all have bits in that book about where we failed, where we fell short of what God had called us to be. But there's a second book, isn't there? There's the book of the Lamb, which is then opened. And in that book is listed all of us who call Jesus our friend, our Lord and our Saviour. And our names are written there. And because of what he did on the cross, we have a right to enter to this wedding supper. Because that's then what happens next. After the judgment, everything is put right. And then there is this glorious, greatest feast that planet Earth has ever known. It is beyond any imagining of what a wedding feast. I've been to some good weddings, I'm sure you have. But they are but a pale imitation of this wedding feast of the Lamb. So what has changed to make this story so different? Well, Jesus. Jesus has come. He's lived and he's died and he has brought that new covenant that Ezekiel hinted at through his death on the cross. And what we're going to now do is look at probably the greatest passage um, that describes this relationship between Jesus and his church. Nikki's going to come and read it. I could probably do with a microphone somewhere. Is there one? Thank you. This is a passage we often read at weddings because what we do there is we, we talk about husband and wife and their relationship being like Jesus and the church. Today we're turning the passage round. We're going to say, well, a wedding and a marriage is a bit like how Jesus relates to his church. So Nick is going to read to us from Ephesians 5. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Thank you. So we're going to dig into this mystery. I'm going to look at the four things that it says Jesus, the bridegroom, has done for us, his bride. And we're going to look at the two things that we do in response to him. So the four things that he's done are straight there in the passage. First of all, he, he gave himself for us. We are a blood-bought bride. It's a strange combination, isn't it? But that's true. It was his blood on the cross that bought us as his bride. So first of all, he gave himself. Second, he cleanses us by washing with water through the word. We'll look at that and what that means in a minute. Thirdly, he presents us to himself. A radiant, splendid bride without stain or wrinkle. I really hope something of that gets hold of us today. I, it's, 
that, that presentation, we'll come to it in a minute, I think is a, it's a beautiful and amazing thing. And then lastly, he feeds and cares for us as a church. That's what he does. So we'll go through these quickly. First of all, <clears throat> he gave himself up for us. It was his sacrificial love that took Jesus to the cross. That was a death that was full of pain. It was the most degrading way to put a person to death, the most humiliating, the most painful. And of course, there was a desolation in it that's beyond our understanding, where Jesus was cut off from his Father. Why did he do this? Well, Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. And a part of that joy, a significant part of the joy, is us. The bride. That's why he put himself through all of that, for the joy set before him. In that death, something fundamental, something universe-shaking, something powerful and glorious happened and broke the cycle that we've been looking at. Hebrews tells us, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's the foundation that changes this relationship. And there are two things held in tension here. We often use those verses about ourselves individually, don't we? We know that we have an individual relationship with Jesus. We know that he's forgiven our sins as we've committed ourselves to him. But this is corporate as well. This is about the church. This is about a community of us. So all the time when I'm talking, I'm talking about being made perfect individually, but being made perfect as a church as well. And the two go together. And there's also what we call this now and not yet. <laughs> And I was discussing this um, with, with, with Nikki. I mean, we, in a sense, we are engaged at the moment, aren't we? Because we haven't had the marriage feast. <laughs> but in another sense, we already are the bride of Christ. This is true of so much of our Christian life. We have the life of God within us now. We have eternal life. It's already started. It doesn't start when we die. But we don't have it fully. So there's this tension between the two. But it is the cross that has broken the cycle. So what neither we could do, or the people in the Old Testament could do, to be holy and faithful, Jesus has done for us. And as we live in him and he lives in us, we become like him, which is what it's all about. So secondly, he cleanses us by washing with water through the word. This is actually a reference to baptism. And it's, it's first of all a reference to, I'd say corporate, to the whole church. Because when the people of Israel went through the Red Sea, and then later when they went through the Jordan into the Promised Land, that was like them being baptised. They went through an experience which demonstrated and made real the fact that they were cleansed. And we as a church, as it were, have been baptised. We've been cleansed. We're not just a social club. We're not even a family, a big family of lots of Christians. We're a baptised community. We are the cleansed bride who are eagerly looking forward to the wedding. What does that mean in practice? Well, 
It shows in our worship, doesn't it? And our worship this morning even, that God's given us a love for him and a desire to submit to him and to follow him. That's a God-given. That's part of being the bride. It shows in our relationships. It's so important that we love one another. We forgive one another. You may not have encountered that yet, but I warn you, some of us aren't perfect. That might be news to you. But we will need to forgive one another because we want to be that pure corporate bride. It also, of course, is individual as well. Washing with water through the word. The word is probably that commitment we made, that declaration when we were baptised, when in front of others we said, I want to follow you, Jesus, and trust you. That is why baptism matters to us. That is why we will continue as a church to talk about baptism, because it is part of the process of continuing to walk with Jesus after responding to him. So we're never going to apologise for that. Outwalking of our faith in Jesus includes baptism, just as it says here in this passage. Thirdly, he presents us before himself, before his heavenly Father, before the angels, before all creation, Jesus is going to present us as a radiant bride, full of majesty and splendour. Beyond the beauty of any bride you've seen, and I have seen some beautiful brides, I know I'm biased, having had two daughters and a wife got married, but I've seen some beautiful brides, but this bride is going to be even more radiant and majestic, without the slightest blemish, stain or wrinkle. It's a bit like, you know, you've seen those older films where they have this massive ball in a palace and there's this room which is full of people in wonderful clothes dancing and there's food and drink and there's uh, musicians and at the door there's someone who, who announces people. And it's as though this is the greatest ball and event there's ever been. And Jesus is standing at the door and he's saying, I'm going to present to you now my bride. And the doors open and in we come. And the place erupts into applause and joy and wonder as Jesus presents his pure, spotless, perfect bride, which we're part of, to all of creation. It's a bride without blemish, nothing imperfect, nothing to be embarrassed about. It's a bride without stain, no sin, nothing to feel guilty about anymore. It's a bride without any wrinkles, nothing that feels old or worn out, fresh and young. What an amazing event that will be at the end of history. There's an important point here. We need to be careful how we speak about the church. It's Jesus' bride. The church is imperfect, but we can fall into a habit of criticising. I'm not talking about necessarily here, but any other churches. Be careful. If you criticise the bride, you criticise the bridegroom. We should always be careful how we talk about the church, because imperfect though it is, it is Jesus' bride. It's not that he would see it through rose-tinted glasses. You don't need to read the beginning of Revelation, where in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus speaks to individual churches. And he encourages them, and he points out what's good, 
but he also challenges. He says, I have this against you. Jesus knows about his church. He's not rose-tinted glasses, but he loves his church and he's going to present it to him. No individual church is perfect yet, but together we form his bride. And one day, one day, Jesus will present us to all creation pure and spotless. Lastly, I haven't thought of this one before. He feeds and cares for his church, just as a husband would feed and care for his wife or vice versa. He feeds and cares for us. We live under the care and protection of the Son of God, who actively and in a detailed way daily feeds us and protects us, both individually but also together. I think that's speaking as someone with some responsibility in the church, that's such a relief. <laughs> Every day Jesus is feeding us and caring for us as a community. And I think we've experienced that through tough times, haven't we? Been a very hard two years, but he has been feeding us and caring for us every day as a community. And we've seen some of the fruit of that, haven't we? Miracles in people's lives, new people joining us. We've experienced the feed and care of God. We will move out of this period soon, but I've been, I came across recently some prophetic words of people I really respect as prophetic figures who are sensing that although we move out of COVID, there are other things to come that could be just as major. And just to, just to recognize, he will feed us and care for us whatever happens. That is our foundation. We proved it, but we may well need to continue to hold on to it. So Jesus cares and feeds for us. So what about the two things that we do? How does the bride respond to the bridegroom? Well, in two ways, anticipation and preparation. How often do you think about heaven? When did you last, when did I last think about heaven? The marriage feast of the Lamb is just the beginning, isn't it, of our eternal life, which is far longer and far, you know, infinitely longer <laughs> and more glorious than our life here. Heaven is where we're going to spend eternity. How often do we think about it? It is a place of such beauty, a place free from all frustration, guilt, pain or sin. It's it's a place where the colours are more vibrant than anything we've ever seen here on earth. It's a place where Jesus has prepared, he said for each of us individually, a home which is going to feel more like home than anywhere we've ever experienced. It's a place of overflowing love, of exuberant joy, greater than any party we've ever been to. A place of profound peace, fulfilling worship, captivating and we're going to be doing stuff that's meaningful and fulfilling and that's only a fraction of it of course because above all it's going to be where Jesus is when did you last think about heaven anticipation is, is, is what brides do I obviously haven't got direct experience of what it's like to be a bride waiting for a wedding it's a bit similar as a bridegroom, probably not quite the same. So I've spoken to Nikki and I've spoken to one of my daughters. And one of those things is anticipation. 
you start looking forward to it. There's a start to imagine how different life is going to be. Start to think about the event, the dress. Jess will understand all about this. Think about the dress and the food and, and how it's going to be. There's an anticipation that starts to come. Thinking, imaginating, imagining, <laughs> meditating on the new future. And this transforms the dullest day, or so I'm told, and gives hope and joy in the most difficult ones. This anticipation changes how we live. We're engaged to Jesus. We experience a bit now of what that's going to be, but there's so much more. And there's a wedding feast and a glorious eternal life in his presence. Let's meditate on that. Read a good book on heaven. If you haven't read a good book on heaven recently, get one and read one in these next few weeks. I promise you it will do you good. I promise you it will change how you see your everyday life today. Uh, if you don't know of one, I would recommend one called Imagine Heaven, um, which we've both read recently and is very good, but you may well have something else. But read a book on heaven every now and then. That anticipation is important. Secondly, what's the second thing that changes? Well, when you're in grace, you realise you've got to start making decisions together. Sometimes we realise that quicker than other times, but that's certainly what's going to be happening. <laughs> And there's this start of a process of starting to love the same things and on the other side to hate the same things. You start to become more like each other. We start to become more like Jesus. We start to become more holy. That's what it means in that Revelation passage I read. The bride makes herself ready. What is that? Well, we start this process of getting those garments. We never get there on our own completely at all. But we start the process of getting. You see, a bride could turn up to her wedding in sweaty trackies, torn t-shirt, messy hair, turn up to the wedding, and it would probably still happen and she'd get married. She'd still be married. Be pretty embarrassed and ashamed and feel that She's lost a lot of the sense of what it could be, but it will still happen in just the same way. Come the wedding feast of the Lamb. It doesn't, it, it, in terms of where we're going to go, it won't matter how white your garments, my garments, or this church's garments look. We will still go to eternal life, but it will have some consequences. It will affect how we feel on that glorious day. And the Bible does talk about rewards. So, we want to be, as the old Puritans used to say, we want to seek to be as holy as a justified sinner can be. This is something important, something worth doing. Pursuing righteousness, pursuing holiness is not an optional addition to our salvation. It is the natural outworking of it. It's part and parcel of it, both individually and also for us as a church. If we go back to this, if this is pure, it creates some beautiful colours. If this is murky, so the colours are murky and they all blur together and the world is not very impressed. When we have a church, a bride of Christ, that is seeking to be righteous in our relationships with each other, we're like this prism and the colours 
are stunning to the world and to powers and principalities. So just lastly, what does this mean in practice? How do we do this? Because I know we will have all had put in us a desire to be holy. That's what God does. That's what Ezekiel tells us happened. But we've all struggled with it. I mean, well, I have anyway. I don't know if anybody else has here. But it isn't easy, is it? It doesn't come completely naturally. So how do we do this? How do we in our own lives? I think one of my favourite verses is Philippians 2 verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act to his good purpose. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is important. This is awesome. This is serious. We work at it. But how do we work at it? Because God, first of all, gives us the desire to do it. And secondly, he gives us the power to do it. Colossians 3 verse 10. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. As we spend time with Jesus, we become more like him. We become more holy. It is about fighting sin. We have a temptation to make peace with sin, don't we? To draw up a peace treaty, to just accept it. Habits, behaviours, things we think, that's never going to change. Can I encourage us today to declare war on sin again? To declare war in the name and in the power of the bridegroom on those habits, those things we struggle with, and ask for his help, his his help to give us the will to continue to fight it, but more importantly, his help to give us the power to fight it. The Puritans used to say, sanctification, which is what we're talking about, is heaven begun in the soul. This is what we're looking at. Holiness is the true source of happiness. If you want to be happy, seek to be holy. So, the bridegroom has come. He has and continues to redeem, to cleanse, to purify, to feed and care for his bride, which is us. We are part of that. We need to and we can look forward every day in anticipation of this glorious event and of what our life is going to be like. This is a, this is a romance. Remember the, the bride... I know they do. They put counters on their phone, don't they? To count the number of days down to the wedding. We can't quite count the number of days. But it's the same thing of every day remembering. This is where I'm going. This is where I'm heading. This is what is happening to me. And in that, we can look for that, the will and the power of God to become as holy as we possibly can be. Isn't that a great aim? To end our lives as holy as we can possibly be.